Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Noe joins us on the program. Premier, thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much for, for you also taking the time, Roy. We appreciate it. Premier, uh, what is your response? Uh, what do you say to the, to, uh, to the Canadian people, uh, to the people of Saskatchewan after the Supreme Court decision on the federal government imposed carbon tax? Well, this is a, a disappointing day on a number of levels. One, uh, um, you know, I think we all want to address uh, all federal parties and, and, and uh, all provincial governments are, are working with the federal government to the degree that they can to address the, the conversation around climate change. And yes, reducing our emissions is part of that conversation, but so is enhancing our sequestration opportunities. And I've talked uh, many times on this show about that. What's happened here today is the Supreme Court of Canada has said that the federal government does have the right to enact this, uh, this carbon tax on, on fuels, uh, on all families and, and all industries that are working uh, in the nation. And it's disappointing for this reason. Um, there already is good work going on on the heavy emitter side in all provinces, Saskatchewan included, and, and working in partnership with industries and the federal government. There's good work uh, going on, for example, in Saskatchewan on uh, equivalencies agreements around our, our methane emissions in the energy industry. And we have one of the most sustainable energy industries in the world that is uh, emerging uh, right here in Western Canada. And, and uh, to have this, uh, for this squabble to be necessary, uh, to go to the Supreme Court of Canada is entirely disappointing. It's a divisive policy that was enacted in a very divisive way. And uh, I would just say that it, it, on behalf of Saskatchewan residents, we're very disappointed in the outcome. Um, however, we will be moving forward in in, uh, in compliance of this in some way, shape or form, likely similar to what Premier Higgs has done in New Brunswick. Really, the, the point is, and you and I have talked about this, and you've made the case, and you've made the case very eloquently, that Saskatchewan was really on the ball, that you were really out in front leading on the issue of protecting the environment. And that just doesn't seem to have been good enough for Mr. Trudeau and his government. When you look at the investment the Saskatchewan uh, government has made through our, our Saskatchewan Power Corporation on behalf of the people of this province in, in carbon capture and storage, and then you know, turning around and taking that carbon and enhancing the, the oil recovery and what was a uh, likely a timed out uh, energy or oil field uh, in the Weyburn Mydale area. Uh, you know, that's just one example of, of where Saskatchewan has been working very diligently at, at exploring innovation and opportunities to really address, uh, you know, our carbon footprint on the emissions side uh, here, here in Saskatchewan. And I know every other province can tell a, a very similar story. What we're, what we're talking about here today is the, the obstinance of the federal government to move forward on, on a fuel tax on hardworking families in this province and, and other Canadian provinces, uh, we don't feel it's in, in any way an effective tool in actually reducing emissions. Um, they have full intent of bringing this up to 40, 50, 60 cents a litre on, on, the, on the gas that we buy, the fuel that we heat our homes with, the fuel that our agricultural producers uh, dry their grain with in Saskatchewan. And we don't think that's an effective policy in any way, shape or form. Uh, we can embrace innovation and opportunity in, in the industries that are emitting, um, which, yes, is to some degree the transportation industry, but there's many other industries where we have uh, focused in on, in on and are, are doing very good work with the supportive industry. So um, <clears throat> a disappointing day, 
um, for for our province and and the in, the people that are employed in our province. And I, I think, in fairness, a, a rather disappointing day for many Canadians across the nation. Premier, let me ask you about uh, the vaccine reality and uh, as the pandemic continues. Premier Ford uh, spoke out very strongly on Friday and challenging Mr. Trudeau and the federal government on the rollout and saying it's a joke and he's fed up with it and he's no longer going to be playing Mr. Nice Guy. What is your sense in the province of Saskatchewan as far as the availability and the rollout of the vaccine is concerned? It's been nothing short of abysmal with respect to our access uh, to a large number of vaccines early in this, early in our, our uh, dealing with, with finding the exit door on, on this pandemic. And in Saskatchewan, we don't have to look very far to see um, what is happening when in, in communities when you have um, much, much more ample access. There are, I think, in excess of 50% vaccinated to the state in the state just south of us in North Dakota. They had much more challenging COVID numbers back in November. Uh, they're over 50% vaccinated today. They've lifted most of their restrictions. They're playing hockey. They're, there's no uh, restaurant restrictions. They lifted their mask mandate this past year. We see that uh, here in Saskatchewan. And, and we're sitting at you know far less than 20% vaccinated, not because we haven't been able to uh, get the vaccines out to folks with our public health system. We just haven't simply been able to receive them uh, from the federal government. So... Uh, Doug Ford's right. Uh, our, our vaccine procurement strategy uh, in this in this nation has been nothing short of abysmal, um, and it needs to pick up. It needs to pick up very quickly, and then we'll deal with um, how it was. Uh, you, you know who who fumbled the ball in these early days. Do you have confidence that you'll be where you need to be, though the country is going to be where it needs to be, and what the Prime Minister promises to us by the end of the summer that Canadians who want to be vaccinated will be vaccinated. Oh, we're going to have one shot. If we can get the vaccines, we're going to have one shot in everyone in Saskatchewan, or at least offer it to everyone in Saskatchewan over the age of 18, um, far before that, uh, likely by early in June or maybe even the end of May. Uh, we have the capacity to deliver that, and I know other provinces uh, most certainly do as well. Um, as we as we make our way through the age groups, we are hopeful that uh, we will be looking for a much more back-to-normal life uh, scenario far before September. Um, and and, uh, and and really looking at it, um, I was hoping in the, in the next number of weeks, the variants have likely delayed that to some degree, but most certainly over the course of the next month, two or three. All right, Premier, final question for you. Federal budget, April 19th, you and your fellow premiers have uh, asked the Prime Minister, been very direct with the Prime Minister, that you want an increase in the health transfer. The number $28 billion was mentioned. The Prime Minister is noncommittal. Do you have any sense, or I don't know if he was noncommittal, just said no, uh, do you have any sense that the, there will be forthcoming some significant funding for health care for the provinces? I, I hope there is, and and not because uh, then the provinces can say, you know, we, we want a, a, a disagreement or a conversation that we had with the federal government. I hope there is. Um, because it's the right thing to do on behalf of all Canadians. When you have all 13 premiers of different political stripes align on an issue as significant as health care funding that um, has, has been drastically under, underfunded by the federal government for decades now, um, but coming together and, and attempting to work with the federal government on ensuring that, yes, some of this has been highlighted through COVID, but the, the, the challenge goes far, you know, far back in time uh, previous to COVID, um, but when you have all of these premiers coming together to work with the federal government, it would be my hope in the interest of all Canadians that the federal government would come forward uh, with a significant funding, a far more significant than we saw the other day, which sounds like a large number, but isn't when you divide it up amongst uh, 35 plus million Canadians. 
um, come forward with a significant number that would ensure that our healthcare system, um, our, our surgery capacity that is going to need some work in the next couple of years, but ensure that had that healthcare system, that public healthcare system that we have and that public access for every Canadian in this nation is preserved for uh, years and years into the future. That is, uh, I think, all premiers, I won't speak for all premiers, but I would suspect it would be in their top three asks going into this spring's budget. Here is an opportunity for uh, this, this federal Liberal government to rectify a wrong. Mr. O'Toole, good to have you on the program. When you hear the, uh, when you hear the Environment Minister, what is your immediate response? And what uh, do you want to share with us about the decision by the Supreme Court on Thursday concerning the uh, carbon tax and the requirement by the provinces to accede to the demands of the federal government? Well, it's good to be with you, Roy. Uh, my first thought is the minister should actually read the decision. <laughs> what the decision said is, Climate change is critical at both the provincial and federal level. There's a dual aspect to this issue, but it said the federal government will be paramount. And part of the reason it said the federal government needs to have this paramount position in the national interest is because there's carbon leakage between provinces. If one province isn't doing what they can um, and another is, that that you know there'll be leakage of those emissions well that same leakage roy exists between canada and the u.s the u.s doesn't have a carbon tax and leakage means jobs and investment and we've already seen jobs and investment leaving canada for the united states and so we have to have a smarter plan than just a tax on everyone and everything we have to have a dedicated plan to work with provinces and large emitters to get our emissions down so that's what the conservatives will do i the court said the government can impose a carbon tax, but should they is a different question. So we will not have Mr. Trudeau's uh, all-encompassing carbon tax on the poor and on small businesses trying to get to make a go of it. We will get emissions down, but we will also focus on economic competitiveness. Okay, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Uh, let me get your thoughts on and your response to China issuing sanctions against your foreign affairs critic, Michael Chong and uh, saying that Mr. Chong is not welcome in China or any of its territories, claimed or otherwise, and that no one who has any dealings with the Chinese government may have any dealings with Mr. Chong. Well, listen, I'm very proud of Michael Chong's principled work as a member of parliament. He's an intelligent, thoughtful voice, and we're using he's using his freedom as a Canadian to highlight the Communist Party's genocide against millions of people within their own country. That's us showing that our values are important to us. Um, you know, many Canadians after the two Michaels have been in prison for several years, Roy, many Canadians would choose not to go to China anyway because of the, the risks that, uh, that are on, on people in a, in a totalitarian state like that. So I, I, I'm glad that, that we have shown a principled position, and I was proud that MPs uh, on human rights committees of all parties um, we're, we're highlighted for us speaking out. And I, I think Canada needs to speak out when we have in the past on apartheid, we can actually push world and global attention in the right direction. And so Michael's been doing a great job, Kenny Chu. Many of our MPs have been strong, principled supporters. Would you, Mr. O'Toole, respond to the Chinese government, excluding whatever Mr. Trudeau may or may not do? He's done very little. But would you respond with your party, with your caucus, and reply in kind to the Chinese government? Let them know that if you became the Prime Minister of Canada, you would not play ball with them in this manner. 
Well, I've said for some time, Roy, and I, I think maybe even with you in the past, that we should be considering Magnitsky sanctions against Chinese officials for their treatment of the two Michaels, Mr. Covert and Mr. Spaver, who were taken as basically diplomatic hostages for the Communist Party to make a point. We should also use sanctions uh, for the Uyghur genocide in Xinjiang, and we should press our allies to take the same approach. So I'm actually... Uh, I'm actually really happy to see the U.S. administration, Australia, many other countries showing leadership here. I think Trudeau has not been showing leadership. We're, we're not aligned with our country. No, I understand that, Mr. O'Toole. Sorry, sorry to interrupt here, but would you, do you have an option now? Yeah, we have an opportunity to instruct your caucus to reply in kind or respond in kind to, to China. Because China is now taking on, has sanctioned one of your MPs, you have the opportunity to act independently of the federal government and, and instruct your caucus to act similarly toward Chinese interests. Well, we have been, Roy. In fact, in the fall, we voted and Parliament voted to ban Huawei from the 5G infrastructure. It was our motion that, uh, that recognized the Uyghur genocide. We have raised cases of Chinese communist espionage within Canada and pressure that they're putting on institutions and and Canadian citizens, we will continue to do what we have done for many months, which is call out the bad actions from the communist uh, regime in Beijing. This is why they they sanctioned Mr. Chong as the most senior Canadian parliamentarian, because the Conservatives have been showing the leadership in the absence of leadership from Mr. Trudeau. Okay, so what I was getting at, and I don't want to stick on this point because there are other things to talk to you about, but what I was getting at is that you could say to your caucus individually, you will have no dealings at all with China at the same level that they banned our caucus colleague from, uh, from, from dealing with them. But let me move on to this. Doug Ford took the gloves off challenging the federal government on vaccine rollout and vaccine supply, saying the situation is a joke. Mr. O'Toole, what, is it to, what does it say to you and what do you say to Justin Trudeau about the vaccine rollout? Because you know Mr. Trudeau's insisting all will be fine by the end of summer. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, all is not fine when Canada is in 50th or 60th place in the deployment of vaccines. That's, that's a failure of leadership at the federal level. And Mr. Premier Ford and other premiers have to deal with the federal failure and they're doing their best but they have little supply. So we've been calling since the fall, Roy, for clarity and honesty with Canadians on where we stand. Mr. Trudeau keeps hoping that he can beg, borrow, and steal vaccines. What, what, what it means is we're going to have a slower reopening of our economy, a slower economic regrowth, because we're going to be m- months behind countries like the United States that has already vaccinated four times our population. It's, it's unacceptable. It's, an, it's a sign that we need a new, professional, serious government. Okay, let me stay on that theme for a moment. You want Mr. Trudeau to inform Canadians about his plan to reopen Canada, and you want that done within 20 days. You have a plan, the Canada Re- Recovery Plan. So address the first point, please, what you want Mr. Trudeau to do, what you expect from the Prime Minister, and then if you were in his chair, if you have the opportunity to sit in that Prime Minister's office after the next election, could happen any time, what's your Canada Recovery Plan consist of mostly? Well, we want a plan to reopen safely using data, mainly once vaccines are deployed to all the vulnerable seniors and other groups in the country. How can we use rapid tests and that vaccination plan to start reopening businesses, getting the economy back on track? We have to deal with the variants, no question. 
But we do that with the tools of rapid tests and vaccines. So we've been pushing because Canadians are tired of the lockdowns. They're tired and they need to know that there's a plan to get back to open. Our our recovery plan has five points, a million jobs in a year, an accountability act to stop the liberal, you know, insider dealing and corruption, a national plan for for mental health, because that's one of the major crises of this pandemic is mental health. A plan to have vaccines and and to be more prepared at home, secure our country for future crises. And the fifth pillar is a plan to get back to balance over the next decade. We can't spend like the Trudeau government has been forever. We need a plan to get expenditures down as people get to work. So our Canada Recovery Plan is an exciting way we can plan to lead the world in the economic recovery from COVID rather than being behind the developed world as we have been on vaccines. April 19th, federal budget, first one in over two years. What does Canada absolutely require and what do you not want to see at all in the budget? And you think you might. We need a plan to get people back to work. We have the highest unemployment of the G7 despite having spent more. So I want to see a focus a relentless focus, as I say, on jobs in all sectors and all parts of the country. What I don't want to see is more of this ideological Justin Trudeau when he says he wants to reimagine the economy. Any of those sort of lines build back better. That means they're going to choose whose jobs are better, whose jobs have value in the in the minds of, of his liberal insiders. We need to have value any work that gets people back in the economy that helps families recover from COVID, that builds back communities. We need to support an economic recovery that includes everyone. And that's going to be the big difference between an ideological reimagining liberal plan and a conservative plan that will get everyone back in all sectors and all regions. Okay, there were, the Conference Board of Canada told us that in January there was a significant job uh, recovery, and I spoke with the chief economist of the Conference Board at the time. But, uh, but, but you have specific plans in place to drive the economy forward, and uh, this is something we're going to talk about another time. I only have a few minutes with you here. Let me get at this other issue that I want to talk to you about. You're a veteran of the CAF. The investigation into sexual misconduct In the Canadian Armed Forces, Mr. O'Toole, I put to you, I think has devolved into a not-my-fault-his-fault embarrassment in Parliament. Do you agree with that? And as a former member of the the military and a former Veterans Affairs Minister who got some very high praise from uh, veterans organizations I spoke with about you, do you think women in the military are assured at all that this issue is being responsibly dealt with? Um, No, they have no assurance because Mr. Trudeau has not accepted responsibility. For three years, his office, his advisors, and I believe himself, they were aware of serious allegations against the last Chief of Defence Staff, General Vance. Not only did they not do anything following the ombudsman raising it, they gave him an extension of his contract and a raise, Roy. Um, We need a full-blown independent inquiry. We need a freeze on all promotions for general officers and salary increases to show that we take this seriously. In fact, in recent days, we've learned Minister Sajan misled Canadians again on whether he was involved in giving General Vance a raise. This is a government that actually resorts to misleading Canadians rather than showing they're going to hold people to account for their conduct. Okay. Uh, One more quick question. If you were Prime Minister today, would we be in better shape as far as the vaccines are concerned 
than we are now. If you've been prime minister for the last two years, would we be in better shape? Would people not be waiting four months for their second vaccinations? Yes. In fact, last spring, Roy, I said Canada need to be self-sufficient on everything from masks and PPE and ventilators to vaccines. We needed to secure the ability to make a vaccine here at home so that we weren't left to the vagaries of global supply. We saw how masks couldn't be obtained because planes weren't taking off to their intended destination from from overseas. We needed that capacity here. And as I said in my speech to my convention, a century ago this year, we supplied insulin and discovered it for the world. Today, we have to rely on other people for our vaccines. That's unacceptable. We need to lead again. And this is where having a prime minister who has done that in the military, done that in the private sector, we need a hands-on leader, not a photo-op-driven leader. So, Charlie, thanks for coming back on the show. Would you, uh, do you support, are you on side with the Conservatives that the Prime Minister should be before the Parliamentary Ethics Committee uh, answering questions as the Minister of Youth? Well, Roy, um, this is turning into a circus, and uh, so I'm doing a bit of a pox on both their houses. Uh, The motion was to bring the senior political staff around the Prime Minister who had direct contact on the We Charity issue, and I think that's legitimate. because these are the, the main players that put this on the prime minister's desk. We've already had the prime minister speak. I don't think I'm going to hear anything new from him. I know Pierre Pauly would love to have the prime minister again. But I want to know, uh, what what did Rick Tice do in his 30-minute uh, high-level briefing with the we people before it went to the prime minister? But what we're being told now is that the uh, the senior political liberal staff are not going to Uh, accept the motion to come to committee. I mean, I don't know what it is about our committee, Roy. Like, uh, first the Kielbergers wouldn't come, and we had to get a summons. Now it's the senior political staff are saying they're not coming, and they're going to send Pablo Rodriguez, the House the government house leader of all people. I mean, God, send just, I mean, send anybody if you're going to send somebody. But Pablo, come on. It's got nothing to do with what we're at. So it looks like we're going to go into another big showdown at the committee when I really want us to just get this thing done. Well, didn't the uh, Ethics Committee and its pursuit of uh, information also arguably be uh, the um, the reason for the, uh, for the proroguing of Parliament? Well, Roy, it is very hard for the government to say that they were really concerned about Canadians in the middle of the pandemic. That's why they shut Parliament down. What they were really concerned about was that we were getting access to the documents and the connections with the Prime Minister and the refusal for them to take the issues of conflict of interest seriously. We were starting to paint a very clear picture. We're almost nine months later, and, and you know, that's the old principle in politics. The longer you can drag a scandal out, the less power it has. But I think what the Prime Minister doesn't re- realize is that the longer they drag this out, the more it sticks to them. So... Uh, this week, we have called the three key people in the Prime Minister's office who were there when this big document, a document that included the Prime Minister's mother and wife's photograph uh, as part of the sales pitch, was put on the desk of the Prime Minister and all the top staff. I want to hear what what they said, what was done, and why nobody raised issues of conflict of interest. So, so remind us for people who are um, in and out on this issue, 
what the fundamentals are that the ethics committee is pursuing. Yes, I know you want Mr. Ties there. And he had a long conversation on the phone with Mark and Craig Kilberger that you want uh, context of at least. Hopefully content, but context at least. But just bring us up to date what the most fundamental requirements and requests are from the Ethics Committee and why. Well, we are very close to finishing this report and getting it to Parliament. And uh, it's something I've been really trying to get my opposition colleagues focused on because we want to be able to get recommendations to, to show Canadians what went wrong here. What's outstanding um, is the connections that were in the prime minister's office um, we may never get the smoking gun of the prime minister himself but what we certainly see is that nobody was raising questions about the obvious conflict of interest that the prime minister had that his family had and that was actually within this deal that was being pitched we saw photographs uh, of the prime minister's family as part of the sales pitch that's you know if you read the conflict of interest act that's that puts the prime minister in trouble so Weren't there any adults in the room to say, hey, Justin's already made a few big ethical mistakes. Uh, he hasn't shown himself to show great judgment here. Someone should have said, we've got problems with this plan, and we don't see anything of that red flags were raised. We were told red flags were raised, but we don't see any evidence of that in the 5,000 pages. So I'd like to hear that. Then we can get this report done and get to Parliament. But, of course, Roy, politics is politics. So tune in tomorrow, get your popcorn, and you're going to see a lot of huffing and puffing and chest pounding. Uh, I just want to get some answers. It really seems incongruous, Charlie, that the Ethics Committee of all committees should be the one that causes such continuous stirs of emotion, anger, frustration, and fear. Well, certainly, I mean, you know, Roy, uh, me being the subject of this attack website from the Kielberger brothers, uh, the amount of letters we've been getting from the lawyers, from Victor Lee's uh, um, lawyer, from the Kielbergers, this is really not normal behavior. Parliament brings a lot of heavyweights to testify and we don't have to sit and argue about what we can and cannot ask and whether or not um, their rights and their issues are going to be accommodated we call a witness they show up we they testify we get answers uh sometimes it's on national tv and a big story and other times it's not some what is it about this whole keelberger issue that we've seen so much interference all the way going back as you pointed out to shutting parliament down uh, then the massive filibusters, uh, then these battles with the, the Wee brothers about their lawyers, and then trying to get information from their chief financial officer, which we're still not getting yet. And now uh, they're going to send us the, the government house leader yeah. to talk about stuff he knows zero about. So okay. it's, it's just obstruction after obstruction. This is really disturbing. Has the parliamentary investigation into sexual misconduct in the Canadian military devolved into deflection? I think it has. Operation Honor shut down. That's the operation that was supposed to be investigating sexual misconduct in the CAF. The Navy shut down the Red Room probe. How many people even knew about the Red Room probe? And the current military ombudsman, Gregory Lick, is rebuking the Minister of National Defense, Harjit Sajjan's claim that Mr. Lick's predecessor, Gary Walburn, failed to probe a complaint about the former Chief of Defense Staff, General Jonathan Vance. So we have the current ombudsman siding with the previous ombudsman, with his predecessor, against 
the Minister of National Defense. Colonel Michel, Michel Drapeau joins us. He's been a guest of mine many times over the years. He was in the Canadian military for more than 30 years. He's a lawyer specializing in military issues and matters and cases in Ottawa. It's Michel Drapeau Law Office, mdla.ca. Colonel Drapeau, am I right? Am I correct? Or am I missing something when I say, in my view, this has devolved into something it wasn't supposed to be? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's currently out of control. And uh, I, I think a government believes that just by the sheer passage of time, the Canadian public will get fatigued from it. And um, it's it's currently off the main page. Uh, and the public is turning his attention to something else. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if later on this week or next week, Parliament is not in session, that um, that the ministry or government or both will announce their solution. And their solution will be, I'm pretty sure, will be we will leave it to the military to fix themselves, um, uh, the problem. That's what we've done in every instance, because it's not the first time we have issue of sexual misconduct in the forces. I mean, it goes back uh, 1993-94 when McLean Magazine produced three uh, front cover stories on it. Uh, we had Russell Williams in 2010. We had uh, Madame Deschamps with a report in 2015, and, and on and on. In every instance, the, uh, the government has turned to the military and say, fix it. The last time when Madame Deschamps produced a report, uh, the military... Um, came up with Operation Honor, and we know this did not lead to any uh, successful outcome. It created its own reporting center inside National Defense Headquarters, as opposed to what Madame Deschamps recommended to be an external independent uh, center. And, uh, and the thing goes on. On the issue of uh, former Ombudsman uh, Walborn, um, absolutely right, and I agree uh, with the, his position. He could not, by direction provided to him when they established a position of ombudsman in in what was became to be known as ministerial directives if something uh, if an allegation was made against the cds or the deputy minister he had no choice no other avenue but to report it to the minister and leave it to the minister to to do whatever he deemed necessary in order to get to the bottom of it so Operation Honor is cancelled. That's the investigation into sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. Do I hear you saying that even when it was conceived and then put into operation, into practice, there was never an intent to really come up with something significant and of value? That's right. Madame Deschamps made 10 recommendations. Most of them have not been enforced yet. She made a report in 2015. But the central point of her recommendation, in order to provide, because we have to remember what she said, is many, many victims don't trust the military to investigate it. They have no confidence into the military justice system, and more so, the majority of them fear reprisal, so they don't report the crime. And in order to assist that, in order to give some type of protection and some type of confidence to those victims, she recommended that a reporting center be established external and, uh, and, and separate from the military. And the military turned around and placed it under the control of the deputy minister. And uh, uh, with the result that we have now, I mean, there's no change. And Madame Deschamps, uh, she appeared again before a uh, parliamentary committee on the status of women on Friday. And I listened into it, and basically she says most of the recommendation have yet to be implemented. So we have made no progress on 2015. 
none whatsoever, military victims or victims of this had had no confidence in 2015. They have less confidence now. And the best example we have, a very eloquent example, is Lieutenant Colonel Turner, when she uh, basically suddenly retired from the forces and basically uh, told the public what she thought of it and why she did it. Do you expect anything to really change, or is it just going to be an ongoing series of, uh, no, I'm not responsible, no, he's responsible, no, he didn't do it correctly, no, just passing the buck? That's what I'm expecting, unfortunately. And unless the public, there is a groundswell in the public to to request this government to act, and it has to be government, and more significantly, it has to be parliament. So I'm encouraged by the fact that there is, in fact, a parliamentary committee uh, of of national defense investigating it, but their power is limited, particularly within a a minority government, uh, to force changes. One one of the things that has to happen, uh, parliament has to be involved in the selection of the next chief of the defense staff. More than that, has to be has to be involved, and it's not involved at the moment, in the selection of senior officers, commander of the Army, of the Air Force, of the Navy, of the chief of military personnel. All of these individuals currently are picked by the chief of the defense staff and rubber stamp by the minister. There is no external uh, control, no external review, no parliamentary oversight over it. So un- until we do this, First, and second, that we establish an inspector general, somebody who reports to parliament, somebody to whom the victims would have the confidence that they can trust them with their complaint and trust also that this matter would be investigated properly and, 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 uh, and accountability will come to the fore, uh, then we would be back to exactly the same situation we, we were a couple of months ago. At the moment, I, I believe government is, is bidding for times. And in the process, people will forget, people will move on, and we already are moving on with other issues. So we're giving them, in fact, a way clear to do as they wish. And what they wish is to provide it back to the military, let them fix let them come up with a new operation on it. And then if we do, uh, we will have not learned from these mistakes. Uh, mistakes which, by the way, are publicized. I remember seeing a piece last week in the the New York Times, in the Washington Post. I mean, the Canadian military in general and the Canadian military justice system does not have a good reputation as we speak worldwide and particularly among our, uh, our, our allies. And the military cannot fix that. It has to be fixed by the elected powers, that is, government and parliament. And those are the ones who have to take to take charge and bring about some solution to assist them. Uh, Justice Eterno and I have just put out a book uh, earlier this week that in fact provides a remedy, some of the changes that needs to be made, including the appointment of an inspector general. Okay, so we just spoke with Colonel Michel Drapeau, lawyer specializing in military issues, matters and cases. He's a 30-plus year veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces, and he very much stated that it is a mess, it's a disaster, what's going on as far as the supposed investigation into sexual misconduct in the military is concerned. The disaster is in the parliamentary investigation, which is really turning into a, well, he said this, and, and, and I didn't do this, and they're responsible for that, but I'm not responsible for this, and the prime minister didn't know, but the prime minister's office knew, and nobody knows enough. And that's the word, enough. It's enough. Sherry Benson Podolchuk 
is the author of Women Not Wanted. She knows about the impact on a woman in uniform of being sexually harassed, assaulted, and otherwise bullied. Ah, Ms. Benson Podolchuk is a former RCMP officer who was victimized by male officers. She was a part of two federal government and Senate reports focusing on sexual harassment and bullying in the workplace. And I've known her for many years now. Uh, you can also find out more about Sherry and you can book her for a speaking engagement. She's amazing. Star Agassi Consulting. Sherry, as, as you're watching what's going on, thank you for joining us. As, as you watch what's going on in Parliament and listen to what they're saying and how they're accusing and counter-accusing, it's not my fault, it's his fault. And the whole issue is supposed to be about sexual misconduct. What, is it same old, same old for you? Uh, Roy, thank you very much for having me, and thank you for being uh, an advocate on this this very serious topic over these many, many years. Yeah, just listening to that and, and what's been happening in the news, it is, you know, let's pass the buck, let's pass the buck, and no accountability. When you when something like this has happened, and just for example, the uh, I think it's Corporal Bordash who was assaulted at the at a, at a party, and people were around and they saw it, and then it went to trial, and it was the the, the consequences to, for the the perpetrator were next to nothing. The the fa- they they failed op honor miserably right there, because uh, you know people saw what happened, and when you when you observe what's happening, and upper ranks of the upper echelon are allowed to do that. What's the message to the rank and file that that the op honor is just a joke, and by by not holding people accountable for for assault. Uh, a sexual assault uh, is, uh, is is just sends a very disturbing message, and it it it, uh, it also sends a very disturbing and, and, um, message to the victim that you don't count, and we're allowed to do whatever we want because we're senior officers. This must bring bring back memories. What's going on now in Parliament must bring back memories for you about how clumsy and defensive the inquiry into sexual misconduct within the RCMP was. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was, well, we're not all like that. No, but if you don't do anything, then you are part of the problem. So here, for example, I I had a very similar experience with this young girl. I was at a Christmas party and and the staff sergeant was drunk and there was probably 30 or 40 people there. And he he was trying to give me a kiss and I backed up against the wall because it was repulsive. And he he kissed me, I turned my face and he got me on, on the side of my face and everyone laughed and nobody did anything. Now, if somebody would have grabbed him and, and taken him aside and uh, when, he so, when, he, when he's sober, because you can't argue with a drunk, to tell him how serious this, this uh, situation was and that is an assault, you know, maybe things would have changed, but nobody did anything. So the message to everybody at the party was this is okay if you're a senior officer. You know, you and I talked about uh, your book when the first book came out, Women Still Not, uh, Women Not Wanted, <laughs> and it's still a question of, I think women have made to feel like they're not wanted, and if you if you if you enter the club, then it's at your own risk. <laughs> but it's something that you have to carry with you for the rest of your life. Oh yeah, I, I, let's. I, we have to uh, acknowledge the victims here because it really you're really damned if you do and damned if you don't. Do you say something publicly? Do you go to them privately? Uh, is there going to be your career ruined? Will there be serious ramifications? Which there usually are. 
and so that's why many people remain silent because they've watched somebody else speak up and watched what happened to them and they're thinking okay well maybe it's not so bad I'll just put up with it or I'll I will let them do that to me and I'll just sort of try and work my life and career around that particular traumatic event but it does it stays with you you know you your scars are they can be physically or emotional but they they a trauma is a trauma and it stays with us without the proper supports without getting therapy and the needs uh, of the victims that, that so that they can recover and move forward. But they also need to move forward with their career. It's unfair that yeah. they are labeled a troublemaker or other names because they've stood up and said, hey, don't touch me, man. Don't let, me, let, me read you, let me read you an email. I just got part of an email. I won't identify the writer. Good day, Mr. Green. You're the only media source I've turned to for truth. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I spent over 10 years, he writes, in the CF, Canadian Forces. Although I have the most, the utmost respect for the average soldier, sailor, or airman, the institution is dysfunctional, broken, old boys club of testosterone, where any person treated badly by the system and speaks out is silenced, isolated, demonized, or worse. I speak from personal experience. That just arrived. Mm -hmm. What has to happen, Cherry? Well, I liked what uh, uh, Colonel Drapeau had said about adopting most, if not all, of uh, Madame Deschamps. Uh, I'm not sure if I spe- said it right. Uh, her recommendations, um, uh, the recommendations. I think those are that's a start, and then also acknowledging that there's a problem and not passing the buck anymore. And what's disappointing is when because uh, my, my husband's in the military and he's an honorable man. There are honorable people in there right. who are do- serving and protecting, and and same with the RCMP, doing a wonderful job. Right. It just takes a few people to ruin it. And when those few people are at the top making decisions on things are going to be policies that are going to be a yeah. part of off honor or the new the new the new uh, whatever program they're going to have uh, to a, to replace off honor it's so demoralizing for everybody else sherry i'm sorry i have to stop you i didn't even look at the clock <laughs> and i'm way over but thank you for coming on it's sherry benson com is where you can find sherry and uh women not wanted is her first book thank you for listening to today's podcast if you want to hear more Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.